everyone, and welcome to a special edition of the News Agenda. And instead of our usual discussion about what's in the news, I want to show you something that you should be talking about. This year is not just the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, marking 70 years on the throne, but it's also the nation's Plutonium Jubilee, marking 70 years of the longest scandal in British history. You are about to hear the testimony of some of the survivors and descendants of the UK's nuclear weapons testing programme, which took place between 1952 and 1991 in America, Australia and the South Pacific. These are the personal stories of Gordon, John, Brian, Terry, Doug, Suzanne, Anne, Susan, Laura, Liz, Steve, Charlotte and Alan. You'll also hear at the start from Andy Burnham, the Metro Mayor of Greater Manchester, speaking at a recent meeting of the nuclear veterans. Now I'll leave it to them to tell you what's been going on. But the mirror campaigns for justice for these men and their families, and this year, in the Plutonium Jubilee, we say it's about time they finally got it. Please listen to them and help to spread their stories far and wide. Thank you. Suddenly, from blackness I saw the bones in my hand every bone in my hand I could see as if I was stripped of flesh is this the greatest injustice of them all I thought I'd seen the end of the world I think you could say that it is and if you lived to be a million years old you would never ever be able to describe the intensity of the white light. Stands out actually for being the, the longest standing injustice without a shadow of a doubt in the post-war period. Neglected completely. They were shaking like a leaf, some of them crying, even praying, even praying. They were scared. They were young kids. I was only 18 myself. Uh, for all of these years, seven decades, an unbelievable state of affairs. This is the 70th anniversary year. Like, like a, somebody shoved a fire, an electric fire, against your body and slowly pushed it through. Who had signed up to serve this country and in doing so were, were sent around the world serving this country, thinking they were going to support the best interests of this country. They told me I was posted to an island in the Pacific. I didn't know what it was about. All I was told was the fact that everybody was jealous. They wanted to go to a, a desert island. They were then, if you like, treated in a way that they thought the enemy might treat them. Not, not our, own, our own government, our own authorities. Our own authorities put people in harm's way, knowingly. There were men who were older than me and it destroyed them. And that is an unbelievable thing, isn't it? And how many of the British public really understand that? No training whatsoever. No, no training whatsoever. Uh, all we was issued was, was, you know, general shorts, a jacket, hat, boots and socks. And that was it. No protective clothing or nothing. Our forces, our servicemen, and I think some women, but mainly servicemen, put directly, directly in harm's way. 
we hadn't been given any clue, any warning, any notification of what to expect. The Ministry of Defence must have known what they were exposing us to without a shadow of a doubt as the years have gone on I now realise at that time I was a human guinea pig for the Ministry of Defence. August 1957 I got posted to a place called Christmas Island. Christmas Island, an atoll in the Pacific, which until 1957 history had brushed by. I was on Christmas Island for a year. It was supposed to spend 12 months on Christmas Island. I spent 16 months. I am the son of James Ronald Owen, who was present on Operation Dominic on Christmas Island, 1961 to 62. So 24 detonations in 78 days. Unfortunately no longer with us. I'm the daughter of Mr James William Eads and he served with Operation Grapple on Christmas Island 1957 and 1958 and it is a story which actually had a major impact on him mentally and physically um, and it went on to have a major impact on my life. My father was a nuclear task veteran. He served um, in Operation Grapple, he was in the Navy. As a child you, you hear the word Christmas and you think it's something nice, don't you? You think it's some kind of a, a paradise and you know this beautiful Pacific Island but you know as time's gone on it's like an horror story really for a lot of people who you know were involved in the tests and their families. Maralinga test range in the stark wide open spaces of South Australia. My father served at Maralinga in the 60s during the um, nuclear tests. Uh, he was there at the minor trials which are possibly some of the most polluting tests that were done by the British government. And as I say <coughs> Weighing everything up now, everything I had through my life after leaving the, the, the Christmas Island, you can relate to it in some way to the bombs, radiation. I've lived with it, my family suffered through it, and I'm not the only one. It wasn't until about 1985 that after we'd formed an association and began to talk amongst ourselves that we began to realise that we were not isolated individuals. We all had a possible family problem with our first, with our children. And my youngest daughter, at 11, she started to change features and she grew a hump on her back. We had to shave her twice a day and I talk about facial hair. And we took her to the doctors. But uh, when we first noticed these effects coming on, and 
three, do three doctors came into the second consultation to look at her and they immediately organised an ambulance that day to take her to the Pilgrim Hospital of Boston. They took one look at her, put in an ambulance and sent her to the Children's Hospital at Nottingham. And uh, when we got there, of course we were dealing with Jill and trying to arrange to be able to stay there. I actually stayed there 17 weeks and some of the time I slept on the floor alongside her bed. Well, they did an operation on her and every day after the operation, believe it or not, the second day after her operation, she was sitting up in a chair and they'd, she was clipped from the side of her spine on the left-hand side right the way around to the side of her spine on the right-hand side. And uh, every day they wheeled her down to somewhere. They wouldn't let us go with them. And when, they came, when she came back, I asked her what they're doing. She said, they're photographing me. We tried to get information on it, it couldn't. The consultant told me that she got Cushing syndrome. He told me a lot of other things that turned out were not quite accurately true. She went in hospital in the March, she came home in the October, and she appeared to get regression. It began to disappear. So we thought things were looking good. And we'd taken her in for a, a, a medical interview um, in the in the January and she was due for her last one, a clearance interview, in the March. In the car she went into convulsions on, on my way to the hospital and I had to drive on the wrong side of the road roughly two miles through traffic in Boston to where the hospital was with just my hazard lights on, blowing my hooter to get a clear way to get her to the hospital. And then she went on the police escort back to Nottingham where they told us that if the operation was over five hours long, there is some hope. But if it's a short operation, I'm afraid that it will be terminal. Unfortunately, she was only in there about three hours. She came out and uh, they kept her in hospital for another five weeks and then we brought her home. And they even knew to the day and the morning that she would die. And I'm afraid that she, on that Thursday morning, she died in my arms. Going back to after the association was formed and we found out that there was medical issues with most of the children that had been born to the first generation of veterans. The second generation were having problems. The third generation have had problems so far and the fourth generation have now had problems. I tried to get her medical records to justify my doubt in what they'd put on the death certificate. And over a period of three years from 85 onwards, I wrote and I phoned and I even went to Boston Hospital. All three hospitals appear to have lost their records at the same time. So there was no real event there that I could put closure on the situation of why she died. About 1989, did I start to have doubts about the fact that it couldn't happen naturally because all the other guys were having problems with her family line. 
we, we, we were beginning to engage with it and talk about it. And we, I mean, Archie Ross's daughter, and he had the effects of what it did to her published in a magazine. Uh, she had an arm that, that wouldn't stop growing. She'd had 21 operations on it. And her hand was like a claw. She had other malfunctions. And he'd also got Down syndrome in his family. And that was uh, more or less a recognised issue with veterans. There was some form of that um, area of medical problem. But there were children um, that got heart problems that should never be there until they were in their 70s. And the government would deny, deny, deny all the time. They held their own research and published their own papers on it and it was always in favour that supported their denial. I, I continually had nightmares, not so much now, but then I, I got nightmares because I, I felt I was lost in this white light. I, I was to wake up you know, thinking I was lost, I'd gone, you know, I couldn't find my way out of it. When I was a small child, I was eight years old, coming nine, my father walked out just before Christmas and he never returned. He left my mum, my sister and myself not knowing what was going on. And I saw him in my early twenties and the one time that I saw him, he, he blamed his life choices on, on Christmas Island and what he witnessed. But then, as now time's gone on, I've got involved with um, the nuclear community, I can actually understand. I'll never forgive him, I'll never forgive what he did, but I can understand why he did it because he had demons he had mental demons what you would call now PTSD he had no clue he didn't know you know he kept finding solace in the bottom of a bottle of whiskey the thing that scared me the most of all the problems we've had in our family is we managed to get out of a recording that was recorded by a gentleman that was in the same tent is our own father and I was sent this recording which I did listen to and you can hear the countdown to a bomb so you listen to the countdown then you hear the most almighty blast then you hear a terrible like gush of wind like like awful and everything in the tent is shaking. You can hear like metal tin drinking cups they would have had or, or whatever. And this gentleman is recording this, remember, in this tent. Um, and then it was only when I'd listened to all of this, thought, oh my God, that's, that's horrendous, that that bomb was 14 miles away. And that was recorded from 14 miles. That the scientists are saying, that it's going to be 500 years before it washes out of my bloodline. 
all my children and children and children, grandchildren, blah, blah, blah. My first wife, she had 13 miscarriages before she was able to start uh, holding on, if that's a, a good way of saying it, to the children to full birth. My third son of my first wife, he had large, a double large hole in his heart as a baby, so they had to repair those. The first son of my first marriage, his third son, he had a very rare melanoma on the right forehead at 18 months old. And if it wasn't removed ASAP, he could land up dead. My first wife died. Uh, then I married Marion, my second wife, in 1978. We had two children, a boy and a girl. Alan was born in 1980. And it was found that he's got eye problems called Duane syndrome, where his eyes are back to front basically and they had to operate to try to get them back into uh, straight line vision. He tried to join the Royal Air Force because he knew what Air Force, he loves aeroplanes and he wanted to be an aero engineer. And he went all the way through the exams, A1, every single one, he was right at the very top. Wonderful, you're the person that we need. Went to the medical, we can't use you because your eyes are bad. Our daughter, who's proved afterwards to have a skeletal, I'll, I'll explain it as being skeletal problem. She's got serious uh, problems in her back, floating kneecaps and quite bad stomach problems. Uh, and she's going to have that for the rest of her life. And that is my life. I was discharged from Christmas Island and I went back to the UK and six weeks later I was discharged out of the army because I'd completed my service. I got married and then we had a child and unfortunately that child died after four months. It's very difficult to, to go back in time but when you wake up in the morning and you find your son dead in his cot the ambulance came, took him away. We were in hospital and about an hour later, both myself and my wife were arrested and accused of killing our child. And you are then subjected to an horrendous questioning. Now, you can imagine the trauma of me going home the following day, and then me and my wife going shopping. You weren't known as Mr. and Mrs. Morris at that time. You were known, oh, that's that couple whose youngster died. I wonder if they killed him. And I still question, even now, and I'm 84, that should I have done, or could I have done more? I also question how my wife coped with that trauma 
because it was one of those things and it today has, has made me realize a lot of the men I was one of them never ever spoke to their wives about the exposures that we were involved in. We'd got in my dad um, somebody who had lived and breathed the experience and this was much more than an interesting story about our cool dad. This was about a tragedy. This was about our parents who had suffered a trauma and this was about um, a piece of my dad's history that then became a piece of our family's history that um, was so actually significant and so serious. I was obviously born with um, disabilities. Um, the main obvious one is short stature, uh, which is still undiagnosed to this day. Um, there were several other issues, but it has affected me a lot. When I knew he'd been involved in the nuclear military side of things, I, I always figured perhaps there's a link, perhaps there is, but I was almost kind of, well, probably not because I would have known about it. Um, but it was only when I was going through Facebook and I sort of stumbled across um, information myself and groups myself, um, which basically told me that I could be one of the um, descendants that were affected. The more I looked, the more I thought, everything's lining up, this all fits, it's, it's got to be, it has to be. The minor trials that Dad was involved in, what would happen in the event of an accident, say for example, an aircraft carrying uh, a nuclear weapon was to crash. What would it take to detonate that warhead, try and spark that nuclear um, detonation? When these sort of tests are happening, there was molten plutonium spraying 200 foot in the air, and this was coming down in the sand all around them. I guess you might say reckless. He talked about some of the safety that was involved, uh, or the lack of safety. Um, he was kind of saying that there was no safety. Of course, he would say, well, the sand is radioactive. The sand would blow onto your clothes, be in your vehicle, it'd be in your face, uh, be in your food. It, would, it was everywhere. You ingested it, you inhaled it. I guess he told me a lot of stuff, maybe knowing that someday the truth would come out and that I, maybe after he had gone, should be one of the ones who helped carry this forward. Years and years ago, when there first appeared to be a recognition of the Christmas Island soldiers, um, I asked my father to apply through the government to try to get some help or understanding um, with the experience he'd had. He was unwilling. In fact, he was unwilling to discuss anything. We were banned from asking him anything about Christmas Island. He did have numerous medical complications himself as a result. I became ill in my 30s, was diagnosed with antiphospholipid syndrome and then lupus, and I've had cancer. And I was told I have a dying liver. My life has been so affected by something um, with 
how my um, DNA is um, that's been affected what comes along and affects a person's DNA we don't know what makes somebody still stay irradiated I don't know but it's affected my life as well and my children's lives my eldest daughter she's severely autistic and it seems really strange to me I've heard of other people that have had grandchildren that have had problems but at the end of the day I loved my dad I'll never stop loving him I'll never stop missing him because he was my dad um, special go-to person is my daughter Charlotte she is an amazing girl she's faced so many challenges she's had to work so hard to achieve and get what she has now I think the problems make us stronger but I reckon if you put me and mum together you'll get a full person because mostly my body works properly and mostly mum's mind works properly so if you put us together you'll get one You couldn't help noticing the, the horrific scars on my dad's uh, body. And um, as a child, I used to I feel a bit ashamed to say this, but I used to um, feel very uncomfortable hugging my dad. As time went on, I did get to talk to my dad about Christmas Island. It was the stories which told me of his friends that uh, bothered me more, like, you know, people who had children who died and were uh, born with lots of deformities. My friend Derek, who was on Christmas Island with me, who got um, um, cancer and he had two children and he died at 31. Even then we didn't think it was Christmas Island. We didn't, we didn't, we didn't you know, we never thought of it. And then I found out that lots of veterans had died and, um, and, and, and things like that, cancers and, and so on and bit by bit started putting pieces together. Well, I had an emergency operation and, um, and um, they, they removed it and uh, I, I had pretty deep surgery. They described it as like a cluster of, uh, cluster of uh, berries growing and um, they said would, would there be a difficult job for it to heal and it was. It went on for a long time. I was unable to work and I was ill for quite a while. And I had a, a sort of a, I had to go back to, and I had a bit more surgery. You know, I did grow up at times feeling a bit resentful. If someone's sick, you're not going out playing football, are you? He's not teaching me to box, like the things I wanted to do. Or, you know, having that, that energy to, to be able to do the things that, that my friends were doing. With the with the fathers, I weren't able to do enough for my family. I could have done a lot more. I'd only for being on Christmas Island and being irritated and and so on and getting these injuries. Um, I would have had years and years of employment and better pay. I feel angry, really, in a lot of ways. I feel that you know, I'm 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 watching and the time's ticking away as my dad's getting older. Um, you know, he's, he's 83 now and, you know, part of me is like, 
Well, he was an honourable soldier. The failure to be honest about what happened has left daughters, sons at risk with their own health. And then beyond that, grandsons and granddaughters. This is so wrong. They hide from the true fact that they sent 22,000 men to witness nuclear detonations, needed to see what would happen. Not just our fathers, not just our grandfathers, us descendants, we're an experiment, an experiment that they want hidden. It betrays people who signed up to serve our country, but has inflicted an ongoing, a repeating harm on the generations beyond the people who were originally harmed. Never mind the stress and the, the anguish that you've gone through trying to get answers over the years. We can't pin medals on gravestones. You are owed the truth and your families are owed the truth. Just recognise us, accept us and say thank you. Give them a medal. You are owed justice, reparation and accountability to the extent that that is, that is possible. In this 70th anniversary year. Speak to the few that are left. Speak to their families. And those men couldn't have done or given any more for their country. The Prime Minister of this country needs to stand at the dispatch box of the House of Commons and make a national apology to each and every one of you and every member of your families who has suffered. These people are heroes and they are forgotten and that is absolutely something that should not be being wiped from our history books, it should be being celebrated. And if that's going to happen, I'm just going to finish by saying this today and I say it to every single member of parliament currently serving. Get up off those green benches, look, look these veterans in the eye. Look them all in the eye. Listen to what they've got to say. We have to acknowledge what we did in the past was wrong, and we've done that with other things. You know, we all have a history, we all have a past, and things we did differently back then, 70 years ago, and it was wrong. But acknowledge that it's wrong, give the recognition, and move forward and do something about it. There's a lot more younger MPs coming through now who you know, were born a long, long time after the testing, have no idea, they weren't taught it in school, so they have no idea about it until a veteran comes to them or a family comes to them, and then they start to get engaged. So it's about engaging these people, raising the recognition levels, so that they do get recognition, and everybody gets the recognition they deserve. And recognise the legacy, that it, as it goes down the families, it doesn't go away. The medal will recognise the men, yes, which is really important, but there's a story after the men that also needs recognising.